What's up, hardcore humans? This is Dr. Mike with another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today we have comedian and actor Bob the Drag Queen on the show. Bob was the season eight winner of RuPaul's Drag Race and star of the Emmy-nominated HBO series, We're Here. Bob has been an outspoken advocate for LGBTQ rights, as well as a strong advocate for Black Lives Matter. Now, on the Hardcore Humanism podcast, we focus on helping people find their life's purpose and work hard to achieve it. And that path to purpose can be an important part of our mental, physical, and spiritual health, helping us across the spectrum of our life, from the times when we are just looking to survive difficult situations, such as abuse, addiction, and other mental health issues, all the way to thriving as we explore our innovation and creativity. And we look to people who are outside-the-box thinkers who have challenged conventional norms to find out who they are and build the life that they want to live. And one area that is so crucial to taking a more purpose-driven path is for us to understand our identity, how we see ourselves as people, and how that identity both exists in and is informed by our culture. Now, I felt very fortunate that we were able to talk to Bob, who is gender non-binary and uses pronouns he, him, his and she, her, hers, about how he understands himself from the perspective of race, gender, sexuality, and even hometown. And what's so fascinating about talking with Bob is the sheer complexity of how we define ourselves as well as the number of intricate cultural forces that shape who we are. Bob's story teaches us an important lesson for a purpose-driven life. No matter where we were born or what identities or cultures are put upon us, we have the ability to determine, build, and shape our own identities. And when people like Bob step up and share their story, it makes it that much easier for the rest of us to follow his example to determine our own identity and build our own supportive culture. So let's hear what Bob has to say. We are here with Bob the Drag Queen, and we are going to be talking about identity. And Bob, why don't you talk about the different identities, the different cultures that shaped you, who you are, and your purpose in life? Yeah, well, I'm a Southerner. That's one of the probably the most important. I mean, every Southerner talks about being a Southerner <laughs> and growing up in the South. I was raised in Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. And I think that has practically everything to do with my formative years. And I'm also black so this is where we're talking about intersectionality right i'm also queer and i'm also non-binary and i think all these cultures have contributed to every essence of my being and so let's take each one of those four things that you described let's talk about being from the south being black being queer being non-binary let's take them individually and then talk about how they intersect so let's talk about the south to start yeah, so I'm from, I was born in Columbus, Georgia, raised in Columbus, Georgia, Phoenix City, Alabama, LaGrange, Georgia, Corinth, Mississippi, and Atlanta. And it's really interesting because I don't have a concept for any other kind of upbringing. I don't have a concept of what it's like to be raised as a non-Southerner. I literally, literally can't fathom what that would be like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like whenever I see kids in New York City where I live right now, I always think to myself, what must it be like to be like... I just can't imagine what it's like to be raised in, in New York City. Like, it, now, what, it's, what do you it's see so as the difference? I used to play in the woods. I used to live in the woods. <laughs> like a lot of my childhood is mud and red clay, and 
and quite frankly, like a lot of racial issues, like being, I remember at one point when I lived in Alabama, I, we were the only, the well, we were the first black family to live in this neighborhood. Every other family in the neighborhood was white, but we were the first black family in this particular neighborhood. And that was really, like, I had never been so aware of my blackness as I was when I was surrounded by people who weren't black, because I, I've always lived, outside of living in Phoenix State, Alabama, I've always lived in predominantly black areas. Now, let's talk about that idea of being aware of one particular part of our identity when it's less common, when we're in a minority. Because sometimes people will say, and maybe they're well-intentioned, like things like, oh, I don't see color or everybody's equal, but they may not understand how being a minority in a particular community might shape identity. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, if you say I don't see color, then you're basically saying I don't see you. I don't see defining characteristics of you. There's a, there's a famous quote out there where it goes, uh, I don't see color. I don't see defining characteristics. Is this a toaster or a dog? I literally don't know. And that's what it sounds like to me when someone says, I don't see color. Like, but I know you do. So don't say that. You know what I mean? Yeah, there seems like there's something that's, it's sort of false in one way. It's false in the ways that are necessary. So it's false in when it comes to validation. But then it's also saying something like, so I'm, I'm going to ignore the problems on the back end. Yeah, and it sounds, I, can, I can hear what they're trying to do. It sounds like they're trying to validate your experience by outside of your color. But in doing that, you're actually invalidating my existence by being like, I don't see you as who you are. So how did, how did growing up Black in the South shape your sense of yourself as a Black person? Well... There were definitely, you know, moments where I, a very common saying amongst black moms, at least my black mom anyway, was, you know, you, you're going to have to work twice as hard to get half the same things as white people. And that was just something that I remember hearing a lot and thinking to myself, well, my mom said that because she's from, because she was born in the 60s and she's from Mississippi. But, you know, things are different now and people aren't that way anymore. And then throughout the course of my life, I just realizing how right she was. She really had it right. Now, one of the things that we focus on on this podcast is that moment where something could crush you, right? That moment where whether it's a bias or a family issue or societal issue, where you could really turn and say, I can't take this. I'm not going to develop into who I want to be. At that moment, that comment from your mom could be very, very empowering because it's like, oh, I have a I have something to move towards. But on the other hand, it could feel very daunting. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, how did you move towards that so that you were pushing yourself rather than shrink away from that because it it just felt like it was too scary? Well, being a kid, it was kind of like, that's the thing, you hear a lot of that as a kid. You hear a lot of like, being black, you're going to have to do this. And my mom's from Mississippi. So like my mom's from Mississippi in the 60s. So she had a much different perspective than I did and a much different experience than I did. I I grew up in the 90s in Georgia. She grew up in the 60s in Mississippi. My grandma's grandmother was a slave. So like she was so much closer to it than I was. Her experience was so much more intense than mine was. So I just remember thinking to myself, that's just, you know, that's just how my mom talks because she's old and from the 60s, but things will be different for me. That was the thing I had. Yeah. And so when when did you experience yourself and come to realize that you were queer? I think I always knew. I mean, as soon as, you know, most people started to feel attractions, which is 
early teens, a preteen, it was pretty obvious to me from that point on. Like I remember being attracted to men as early as I remember being attracted to people. I am pansexual, so I, I actually remember also being attracted to women as well and thinking that like that was so that maybe this like thing where I was attracted to men was just like some weird phase or if it was uh, something I could just ignore. And were there people around you who were also pansexual or did you feel isolated well, my, in that respect? My, no, my, my mom is queer and I have a queer uncle, so I wasn't completely shielded from queer representation. And, and did your mom give you similar advice in terms of that part of your identity or did she handle it differently? Well, my mom certainly handled it differently. I mean, my mother, my mother went through a phase in her life where she was ex-gay. I don't know if you know what ex-gay is, but it's where you basically like stop being queer for religious reasons. So I've written many articles saying like, that gay conversion therapy is not okay. So <laughs> Yeah, so I've had a lot of experiences. And my mom didn't go through conversion therapy. She just went to church. So I had a lot of those experiences. Like I remember my mother rebuking her sexuality. I'm kind of curious as a kid how you how you dealt with that because here you have in one sense you know your mom I don't know if it would be the term proudly embracing identity as a black person and saying look these are the things that you have to do but you could do it effectively and in this other arena basically creating a different model which is like these feelings these desires are not okay and I'm kind of curious how how that was for you to get these like sort of very distinct approaches to each to an identity issue. Well, that's interesting that you put it that way. Like my mom never ever said that queerness was not okay. She basically just said it wasn't okay for her. She never told me about anything about me being queer or, I mean, my mom took me to my first pride. Mm. You know? The yeah. first pride I ever went to, my mom took me there before I even came out, you know? And, and so how did you make sense of that, that she was taking one approach, but not necessarily suggesting that you take that approach? Well, because I went through a religious phase, it made sense to me. Like, I did, it, it didn't seem like, what a contradiction. It felt like this is what, in my experience, religion can do to a queer person. Mm. And I'm sure there are people out there who have great experiences with religion. I've not had a lot of those myself. Now, one of the things that, that you've said before, if I'm, if I'm quoting correctly, is that drag culture gave you a sense of purpose. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious how you brought all of those identities that obviously are all, you're, you're kind of still working them out to some degree. We're all working things out throughout our life. How do you bring all of those three identities into drag culture? And what was it about drag culture that made you feel like, aha, this is my thing? Well, I do, you know, represent those in my, in, in my drag I don't know how much I represent my non-binariness in my drag. I mean, my drag is is pretty much like, you know, lady drag. I'm not doing a whole lot of gender bending in my drag. In my day-to-day life, I do, actually. Um, but not so much in the world of drag for me. But I like to wear my hair, my wigs, uh, ironically speaking, the next one of views as natural as possible because I like to reflect, you know, Black beauty. When I get dressed up in drag, I like to celebrate the things that, I admire in black women and black people when I do my art and in my comedy, like, you know, I, I talk a big part of my special is me discussing my relationship with my mom. And a lot of that is just growing up with a black mom who's from the South when you are also living in the South. But I have my fans and friends who watch my special who have black Southern moms 
were like, you don't know how on the nose this special was in regards to like having a black Southern mother. And, and, you know, it's interesting how you're describing it because I feel like some people, when they stereotype drag culture or they condemn drag culture, they're making it almost as if, oh, you're ashamed of who you are on some level. And what you're really talking about is a pride in who you are on multiple levels. And I'm kind of curious how drag culture allows you to express that pride in a way that, that you may not have been able to achieve otherwise. Well, I think there's something to expressing yourself outside of the confines of what we've been given by society. You know, when you think to yourself, I have to, I can only express myself through, say, for example, pants and boy stuff, you know? But when you, in my experience, when you open your mind to other things, I mean, there's just, you have so many more options to explore who you are as a person. Like, it's interesting to, to realize that we are, you know, the, the musician Mika? The name sounds familiar, but I'd have Mika, to... Mika, Mika did a song, Grace Kelly. And anyway, he has a song called Golden. And there's a really great lyric that says, we are not what you think we are, we are golden. And it's this insinuation that like we are so much more than people give us credit for being. That's why I love the lyric. We are like, we are not what you think we are. And then, and then just go for, I mean, I don't know what Mika was thinking when they wrote the song, but I know for me, that doesn't just go for like the negative things you said about me. It also goes for everything you said about me. Like I'm people who like give me compliments for my talent or stuff like that. I say, I'm really grateful and thank you for that. But I'm, I am more than my talents. You know, I am also my experiences. I always say you are what you are and you are what you experience. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, it comes to this question of why do we do this? Like, nobody likes being stereotyped. Nobody likes being confined. Nobody likes well, being put in a box. That's, and, and we, and we all... that's necessarily true. Ooh, tell me, tell me. I don't like when a, a white person or anyone who's not black looks at me and assumes that I'm going to be angry, violent, and still. But I do like when I go over to my black friends' houses and their moms assume I'm going to like her southern black cooking and she's right and i do like being stereotyped in that regard i do like when i gather with my with my queer friends and we laugh about the stuff that makes us uniquely queer uh, you know me and my friends in private use a lot of words that <laughs> to describe ourselves that i imagine you probably wouldn't want to you know put in the press but i do like that like those moments feel good you feel seen and validated because someone recognizes the common bond we have. And I guess that is a type, a form of stereotyping to look at a gay guy and assume that they're going to want to gab about RuPaul's Drag Race. But when you're right and you do gab about it and you're having fun, that feels nice. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting that you're saying that because even like I just did now, where you sort of say all stereotyping is bad. And, and yet, as you're describing, you're almost talking about like, there's some benefit to like group identity in some ways. And it would, it would almost yeah. be better if we could allow for group identity, but not assume that, okay, I'm making an assumption about you for this group identity, but I'm going to condemn you if you don't do it, or I'm going to assume that you don't have another identity, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You can't, I mean, basically to put it short, you can't stereotype stereotypes. <laughs> because, <laughs> because Which I, I think good. I just did that. <laughs> I think I just did that. How dare you stereotype stereotypes? What? Look at look at what, what did I do there? I, I, I you know what? I'm I'm stereotyping my own stereotyping and stereotyping <laughs> right now. That's horrible. Exactly. We'll talk about we'll talk about me and my issues after. But you know, so but moving moving into you know what's been happening more recently, I think that there's a lot that's happening 
in terms of Black Lives Matter, but I think there's also a lot of focus that is on how the LGBTQ movement has in some ways been a part or related to everything that's been happening in Black Lives Matter. And I kind of, you know, curious your sense of your activism in either or both of those communities. Well, I mean, the, the queer community has everything to do with Black Lives Matter. One of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement is queer, for crying out loud. And I think that's a testament to everything that queer people bring to this nation, to this world, everything that Black people bring to this nation and to this world. We're such a vital part of the fabric of society. Now, now, just so that for people who aren't familiar with it, maybe if we could talk just a little bit about that history and how those two different movements have been woven together. I'm not a representative of the official Black Lives Matter movement. I'm just a person who believes that Black Lives Matter. So I don't want anyone to, to miscategorize my statements as official Black Lives Matter rhetoric. You mm. know what I mean? Because yeah. I don't go to the, I, I don't go to the meetings. I don't know what the, I don't know what what what's on the agenda or if the you know mission statement is changing. But I do know that this is my noticing that like you know our black lives have our queer lives have contributed to the B, the BLM movement and black lives have contributed to the American greater population. Let's think in terms of all the way from kind of the emotional validation piece, all the way to policies. What things do you want, you know, we can take, we can take the LGBTQ or the queer movement and, and talk about, okay, what do you want people who maybe are not familiar with that to kind of understand about the movement? And then from a policy perspective, what kinds of things do you want to see out there that, you know, people who are interested in supporting should be, should be pushing towards? Well, I'd like people to understand that a lot of the rhetoric in the Black Lives Matter movement is is purposefully, you know, grabbing attention. Like, for example, defund the police really scares a lot of people. They think that we want anarchy on the streets and then for no one to, like, you know, no cops. And defund the police is essentially asking to dismantle. A lot of people want this entire system to be reformed. I think it'd be lovely if everyone received more training. I mean, you receive more training to be a teacher than you do to be a to be a police officer. And we're giving police officers guns and pepper spray and batons. I mean, the amount of training it takes to be a hairdresser is comparable to what it takes to be a police officer. You know what I mean? And we're just giving them curling irons. So if we're going to be giving people guns and a license to kill, then I want to make sure they understand what it means to serve and protect. I think that it would be really nice if the demographics of the neighborhoods were reflected in the police force in those neighborhoods. I think that black people are probably going to be a little more empathetic when they see other black people on the street, as opposed to just, you know, reaching for their gun because they're afraid of black people. I think it'd be nice to see funds reappropriated to other resources as well. Instead of just, you know, arresting our homeless population, we can reappropriate funds and help house them. Imagine that. And I don't mean house them in a jail cell. I mean, house them in a home. Yeah. In terms of LGBTQ rights, there, we just had a pretty big win by most people's assessment with the Supreme Court. I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on that and also just, you know, other things that you feel like are on the agenda right now. What's next, you know, from your perspective? I want to talk about the idea of equality and people feeling like queers or white people would be getting special treatment. For example, the idea that, that queers are protected under law and you can't be fired for being queer. 
For some reason, there are, there's like a contingency of people who see that as extra rights for queer people. And the truth is, in order for there to be balance in the nation, you have to acknowledge that some people have had a head start. If you cannot acknowledge that some people had a head start, I put it to you this way. It's like if I say, all right, you and, you know, Carl have to build a house. We're doing a competition where you build a house. I'm going to give each of you $500,000 and you can use any resources that you already have at your expenses. So no one's pointing out that you're bankrupt and Carl is a millionaire. So it's not just using the resources that you have. You are a millionaire who's also been given $500,000 to build a house. So you're just ahead of Carl in every in every regard. Mm. Like Carl doesn't stand a chance. So in order to make it even, you're going to have to give Carl a million dollars as well. Or give Carl or give you some of the other money. Like you have to reappropriate the funds. And when you consider that there are people who have been it's not even that easy. It's more than just you happen to have a million dollars. It's that you happen to have a million dollars. That million dollars came from the labor of Carl and his ancestors and his relatives. And all the money that you have is because of Carl. But then you have, do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why, I mean, I, I'm intrigued that like America, you know, is, I was really kind of upset to be honest when I, bear in mind, like not upset, upset, but like just, just hardened at the idea that Black people have been asking for reparations for years, and America was essentially spinning a story that that it just wasn't in the budget. But then all of a sudden, we found enough money to give every single U.S. citizen over 18 who's filed their taxes $1,200. So it was in the budget. You did have it. You had it the whole time. And you knew that it could actually help bridge a gap, you know? Yeah. And I'm kind of curious, just if you feel comfortable you know, times on a personal level where you've experienced discrimination, either because of sexual orientation or, you know, or in terms of being black and just, you know, if you want to, if you want to talk about either or both of those kinds of experiences. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do my best to surround myself with queer people. So like all my friends are gay or queer or trans and not a lot of my friends, you know, I don't go to straight bars and it's quite frank because I don't feel comfortable there. I dress a little, I mean, a little androgynous during the day. Sometimes when if I'm going to go into a space that, that I've had experiences before, like in a straight bar or in, like in a place like that, then I would just have pause before I go in there because of past experiences, because of being called a faggot on the streets or be, or because, you know, when, when people would see me in drag on a train, they would throw some transphobic slurs at me it makes you just not want to go to any of those places. Like if you, if this is what you get when you go there, then I just, I'm just not going to go there. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious. One of the things I want to shift towards is in terms of your comedy and how all of this stuff plays out in terms of your performing. Well, I mean, my comedy is very um, political and observational. And obviously if I'm observing a queer life, then I'm going to have some queer humor and, if it's based on my circumstances and my circumstances are queer, then I'm going to have some pretty gay ass comedy. You know what I mean? So let me pause there for a second. We have about 10 plus minutes. So is there anything in terms of anything that we've talked about that you want to talk more about? Well, is there anything that we haven't I, I talked wanna, about? I do want to talk about like representation and why it feels important for me to be on television because, you know, some, there are moments where I think to myself, I am on a an HBO show that has been greenlit for a second season 
and I am a little queer kid from Columbus, Georgia. I think the only other famous person from Columbus, Georgia is Wayne Brady. You know, <laughs> there aren't a lot of people where I'm from who get opportunities like I have, and I really hope that it can inspire someone. Because the thing is, I remember seeing Wayne Brady on my TV when I was younger, and I talk about where I'm from a lot because if I would have known that Wayne Brady was from Columbus, Georgia, I can't even imagine how much essentially life that would have given me to know that people where I'm from can make it really far. And let's talk about that because I feel like people don't, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people do like if, you know, they see it from their perspective. So they don't understand, Oh, what's the issue with representation. But then if they have a media outlet that they feel like doesn't represent them, they get very upset. And so well, one of the things, yeah, it, you know, it kind of drives me, it drives me crazy. The idea Sorry to cut you off, but like, no, I, tweeted this out, I tweeted this out a while back and I still can't believe it hasn't happened. It is, it is 2020. Like Disney needs a fat princess. This is important. It is important for little overweight children or big kids, fat kids to see themselves in media celebrated. And not just like, because like, it doesn't have to be a story of like, can you believe that this, overweight person this fat person is now being celebrated what if it was just a person being celebrated in general and not in spite of their weight mm. and if, if someone can see how that representation matters then i hope you can obviously see why it is important for me to see queer people black queer people on my tv and i'm so happy that i am a black queer person on someone's tv and and, and talking more about what happens when you don't see that because I, f- I feel like a lot of people don't have that experience you know they, they find somebody on the television that looks or in the movies or whatever that looks a little bit like them or reminds of them whatever and for people who don't understand that feeling what is it like to look and just not find anybody that feels like oh i'm i'm, I'm looking at myself a little bit i mean i don't i don't even have that experience because i as far as i can remember even though there weren't a lot of people representing me there were some people representing me i mean i just i recently did an episode of we're here in um farmington new mexico where i was speaking to indigenous queers indigenous queers and they were saying there is nothing and i mean and i'm thinking hard about it i can't think of outside of the people that i was working that i've worked with on one episode of we're here I can't think of a single time I've seen an indigenous queer person on my TV, literally ever. Mm. So it makes you feel alone. It makes you feel like you're the only person like you. There's no, it makes you feel like who can, who can you relate to when you don't see yourself anywhere? And then, so let's talk about that now moving forward into your, your doing that, you know, you're out there, you're representing people from a lot of different perspectives. And I'm just kind of curious, when you go about your work, how aware of that are you? How much do you want to just like do your thing and whatever happens, happens? Like, how do you balance that? I'm a lot more aware now than I used to be. Everything my mom told me was going to happen when I got older ended up happening. (laughs) Everything she said would happen ended up happening. And she told me that as I get older, I'll, you know, become more serious about my identity. And lo and behold, Martha Caldwell was right yet again. So I do keep that in mind as I navigate the world. And when I put on, when I grab my wigs to go put on a wig, I, you know, I'll think to myself, am I going to grab this straight wig or am I going to grab this Afro? Sometimes I grab the, uh, the straight wig still. And, and a lot of times I grab the Afro because it's important for someone to see that. Yeah. You know, there was a period where I was going through like a lot of 
queens when they put on their makeup they lighten their skin if they're really dark because it's hard to show pigment on your skin and i remember thinking to myself i don't want to engage in that i don't want people to see me out of drag like dark skin and then in drag i'm light skin i want people to see me the way i am and see a reflection of themselves in me now, now tell me about that I, I wasn't aware of that that phenomenon why would people do it that way where they would well, lighten their skin of, I mean, in that circumstance the makeup industry is is not necessarily geared toward people of color especially dark-skinned people of color it's getting better it's getting much much better but i'll, I'll, I'll go to put on makeup and it just won't show like it just won't show i mean imagine give yourself a white piece of paper and color it and then give yourself a brown piece of paper, a very dark chocolate brown piece of paper, and color it and see how the colors show up. Yeah. And so you feel like people, because if they're into makeup and wanting to be into makeup, then they'll, they'll lighten their skin in order to be able to, to partake to, to, in that? Yeah, to display the makeup more. Mm. Yeah. Listen, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for everything that you're doing. And thanks for talking. I feel like I learned a lot. I'm hoping everybody does and so you know listen best of luck with everything that's going on things are things are really happening for you my pleasure thank you so much for for listening so there you have it bob the drag queen walking us through how he built his identity and the culture around him our identity can be very complicated and can spring from a range of sources i love how bob discussed so many factors that influenced his identity And I love how Bob surrounds himself with people who support him and how he lives his life. And by being a public figure, even for many people who have not yet figured out their identity or built their culture and support system, just knowing that Bob was able to do so is inspiring, perhaps making it easier for us to feel free and confident to build our own identity and our own purpose. Now, there are many take-homes from listening to the conversation with Bob. One simple exercise we might undertake is to sit down and try to connect with ourselves by identifying what's important to us and what we want to accomplish. And we can try to connect with people who support how we see ourselves and who we want to be as we pursue a purpose-driven life. This is an ongoing process. We are always open to understanding who we are, our purpose in life, and how we can best achieve that purpose. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear on the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism therapy and coaching program at hardcorehumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.